and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. I'm Pippa Rim, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, this has been such an exciting week for me with eventing restarting in Britain. The first elite event took place on Monday at Osby and I have never been so excited to spend the day watching a live stream of open intermediate sections. It was really fab to see several five-star winners outstretching their legs and to speak to the riders afterwards for our report. Now, when we talk about which riders to interview or to use for a feature at Horse and Hound, I'll often say that someone is A-list or their B-plus list. And our guest this week on the podcast is absolutely A-star, star, star list. I was so thrilled to speak to the incredible David Broom about Mr. Softy, who won three European championships in the 1960s. My God, he was a horse for the big occasion. Oof. I mean, it's, looking back, it was 50-odd years ago now. But I mean, it, the thrill of riding him is still with me. I'll also be catching up with my colleagues to talk about the latest on EHV and concerns around Olympic qualification for some of Britain's leading riders. Finally, supergroom Alan Davies will give his thoughts around managing competition horses who live out. It's so good for them. They can be normal, be horses, they can get their heads down and eat, just stretches their backs, and it's great for their minds. So we'll hear Alan's full advice later. For now, sew up that final plat and let's get going. Our guest this week is an absolute legend in the world of show jumping. He's ridden at five Olympics, won 14 championship medals. He was the first British rider to be Sports Personality of the Year, the first British show jumper to win an individual Olympic medal, and so, so much more. And it is, of course, David Broom. Hello, David. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good evening. Nice to talk to you. Now, David, we, we have a feature in this week's Horse and Ham magazine about your wonderful ride, Mr. Softy. So I just wanted to chat to you a little more about him. He was already quite an experienced horse when you got the ride. Tell us, how did you sort of first come to ride him? Well, it was a little bit of an unfortunate story, really, because the horse had been produced by a Mr. Bilby up in Yorkshire for John Marsarella. I progressed from him to David Barker, who was on the team in Rome, and he won the European Championship with him at White City in, I think it was 1962 or 63. And then David gave him up a year or so later, and Mr. John's, I think it's his cousin or his nephew or something, um, John Lanny rode him and rode him at the White City. And they had a bit of a crashing fall and I think poor old John got whipped up the hospital. And father, my father was there and he said to John Marsarella, after it all happened, if you'd like David to give him a little pop over a fence to get the horse's confidence back, um, I'll get him to do it. But Mr. John agreed and I was dragged out of the crowd and um, watching the class. And I gave him a couple of pops round the, round the back where the collecting ring was at the White City. I never thought any more about it. I mean, the horse jumped very nicely and whatever. And anyway, a week or so later, Mr. John rang father and said, would David like to ride him? And, uh, and that's how it all began. Gosh, so it really was sort of a, a chance opportunity that your father mentioned it. And when you rode him that first time in, in the collecting ring, what were your first impressions of him? It's just like somebody saying, well, you jump on this horse and see what he's like, or, or, or give him a pop, he's just had a nasty fall. And I never thought any more about it, to be honest with you. 
he, he jumped absolutely fine. I mean, I could ride him and then uh, he was a nice horse to sit on. He actually, he was a lovely horse to sit on. You know, he just went very nicely. And for me, that was the end of the story, really. I'd had to sit on Mr. Softy. And then when you came to sort of get the ride properly, presumably you got him home and you started to get to know him a little better. What what was he like sort of as a horse to ride and, and train? Oh, what a Christian of a horse. I don't think he ever had an evil move in him. Um, he was as straight as a gun barrel, had a lovely technique. He had a very poor com confirmation and his back end was very cow hocked and whatever. And if you've been buying him for, in the fair or something and he's a four-year-old i don't think you'd have touched him with a barge pole because you thought his back end would never stand up to the wear and tear but lo and behold it did and um, the first year i rode him we went to i think edenbridge or somewhere i jumped him and down in kent and he wasn't quite right when we got home so um we took him up to um to mr brains who was the number one vet in england up at stone in the world and um, he treated him. We left him off that year then, and then we, we started again in 1966. And um, we, we just hit it off. I mean, he was a lovely horse to ride, very well balanced and schooled, nice contact, not too strong, always had a lovely movement forward to the fence. And he had a technique over the fence, which is absolutely second to none, because you could keep riding forward at the fence, albeit you had to be on the right stride, but as always but um his front end front legs just disappeared i mean it was as neat as anything you could wish for and that technique allowed him to jump fences that really speaking he shouldn't have been able to jump because i mean he actually jumped seven foot in in new york with david barker i mean there's some of the fences he jumped later on with me it was only the technique that he had allowed him to jump because he respected the jump, yet you could ride him at the front pole and uh, the front end just disappeared and his back end just worked wonders anyway. So um, that for me was Mr. Softy with the biggest heart you've ever come across. And in that first year together, you had a lot of highlights straight away. You won the Hickster Derby, you won the King George. He was obviously a horse who loved Hickster. Yes, I mean, uh, the funny thing about him, well, I remember jumping him once at a show and he jumped three clears. And I'm walking in first to get the prize, and he shied at a fence. I really gave it a you know, spooked at it, and he'd already jumped it three times and taken absolutely no notice of it. That was a little bit of him, but um, I mean, he noticed everything that went on. But my God, he was a horse for the big occasion. Oof. I mean, looking back, it was fifty odd years ago now, but I mean, it, the thrill of riding him is still with me. Yeah, and talking of sort of those big occasions, he's one of only two horses to ever win three individual European goals in show jumping, one of which was with David Barker and two with you. And the first of those was in Rotterdam in 1967. What are your memories of that week? Well, it was, it was a great week. I remember walking the course with, with Harvey for one of the classes. I think it was probably the last class. And there was an oxer between the two trees going directly away from the collecting ring. And Harvey put his, stretched his arms out between the fence. It needed about another two foot on the end of his arms to touch both poles. That's how wide it was. And it was planks on the front, planks on the back in cups. Now, if you made a mistake at that, you went head over heels. There's no question of that. Those were the jumps in those days. But Mr. Softy jumped, he obviously jumped it terribly well. And for the rest of our lives, whenever we came across a big oxer in, in, in a ring when we were walking the course, 
Harvey and I used to say to her, is it big, is it as big as jackpot? Jackpot was that fence at Rotterdam. But I mean, he jumped phenomenally well there. I mean, not only did, it, did he win the, the Europeans, three days later, he won the Grand Prix as well. That's a different thing to what we have these days in the sport, isn't it? That you had a Grand Prix that was at the sort of at the same show and venue, but wasn't part of the championship and you could jump the same horse in it. Yes. I, I, I mean, um, I can remember it because there was a funny stride to the water jump and Peter Robeson was there and I asked him what I should do and he told me how to ride it. And um, I'm very grateful to him because uh, softer jump, fantastic. And the lovely thing about him too, when you went against the clock, you could develop a very, very lovely rhythm on him, but you could keep going forward. And um, I mean, Harvey said to me one day, he said, that's one of the fastest horses in the world against the clock. And it, it was just poetry in motion, you know, the way he could keep going forward. Gosh, he sounds like an amazing horse to ride. And sort of two years after that Rotterdam experience, he was back for his second European gold with you at Hickstead. Was it special to win that one on home soil? I think to win at home is always special, to be honest with you. After two or three days, I think, the, I can't remember the format, but everything depended on the last day on the Sunday. And you had two rounds against the clock. That, that's how the class was um, decided. And uh, the, the first course was actually 18 numbered jumps, which is a hell of a long way to go, to go against the clock. Because normally jump offs are six jumps, seven jumps. And you can keep a horse contained for that, that those number of jumps without them getting too excited. But for 18, you need a very special horse. And um, that was Mr. Softy. He, he jumped the phenomenal first round, went into the lead. And we came into the second round. There was 12 numbered jumps then, which is still a long way. And uh, he went again at the clock again, was phenomenal. And the, the two runners up was one was Hans Winkler and the other was great friend Alvin Schockermuller. So, I mean, it wasn't just winning the class, it was beating two of the greatest riders in the world really i mean and to do it at home in front of your own crowd i think was very special and the way that horse went that day people were lucky to see him go i really i really believed that at the time yeah and you've touched on it a couple of times the courses that you were facing in show jumping sort of in the in the 60s were obviously really different to those today and that's fascinating can you tell us a little bit more about that what were those courses like well, they were they were very different um Sport was reasonable. It was only about 50 years old in those days. And a lot of the, the, the challenge of the course was in a horse's bravery, let alone being careful. He had to be brave as well because there was a, there was a lot more variety of jumps, big walls, oxes, bushes in the middle. And you need a courageous horse to take them on, not just a careful one. I, I mean, the course he jumped at the Olympic Games at Mexico I mean, I think it was probably the biggest course that was ever built ever in the world, really. I mean, nobody's ever jumped fences like that since, I don't think. I know Montreal was big. I wasn't there. But Mexico, I think, was a jackpot. They were enormous. Gosh. And was the technicality quite different as well in terms of the, the combinations and the, the way that they were built and designed? Yes. Um, the, the emphasis in those days was length, which Mr. Softy didn't have an abundance of length scope. I mean, he had carefulness and whatever, but you could you, you could ride him in to a combination to get the most out of him. But like the the, the combination in, in in Mexico in the in the team class, I mean, the third part of the combination, it was one stride and one stride. He, and he took off, and the back pole was a million miles away. I can see it now, 
and we only made the front bar of the oxer twice and, and luckily the horse landed well jumped the fence but came down before the back pole and the pole went under his neck and we we hit it obviously for six i mean in a way we were lucky because if we'd have got halfway over it we could have been turned over i mean that was quite brutal in those days if you didn't get it right but that the olympics was always that little bit more course builders who got the job of building an olympic course always feel they have to do something special and uh, make it bigger and better than the one four years before and horses that jumped the olympics usually wanted about six months off after it to get over the experience of it and the effort of it and um things have changed an awful lot more an awful lot these days because i don't think they jump as big they're a little bit more technical but there's they don't need anywhere near the scope that they used to have to have in in the 60s and 70s yeah, you were just saying about length. So the distances in the combination were, were long and you really had to sort of ride forward and get a, a long stride. And in terms of distance, like you were saying to that back bar, that they were sort of bigger and bolder in terms of the scope that was needed in the horse's stride. Is that right? Yes. I mean, but I think they went a bit beyond that, to be honest with you. We had a fence in Mexico, a single fence, a single oxer, only two horses in the whole Olympic Games jumped it. I mean, in the Olympic Games, only two horses jumped it an individual fence that's how big it was but i mean mexico i think for mr softy was probably the the ultimate he, he was superb i mean we, we were lucky enough to get the bronze in the individual then four days later in the team I, he had two rounds of four faults both the two fences were that oxer in the combination and um, there were only four horses jumped, four rounds jumped in the time allowed I remember it now the time allowed was 96 seconds my first round was 95.6. My second round was 96 seconds. So out of the four rounds, Mr. Softy had two of them. So he was actually the outstanding horse at Mexico. And I don't think people ever look back and, and, and realize that. And he never got the credit of being the, the Olympic champion, which he might have been under a different format. Yeah, and the things didn't quite work out for the British team. So although he jumped those two excellent rounds, there was no team medal. And, and as you say, a real shame he didn't sort of get the credit for that. He must have been a very brave horse and very forgiving in his temperament because you say he probably had a slightly nasty experience with that rail sort of coming down under his neck in both rounds. He must have been an incredibly forgiving horse to go on and sort of under those circumstances. Yeah, I think the, 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 the trick to that always was I never asked him to jump a fence he couldn't have jumped. I remember I went to the Great Yorkshire one year, well, that year with him. And the Great Yorkshire to a Yorkshireman is everything. And I walked the course the first day, and a combination there was for, ah, it was just miles too long for Mr. Softy. So I came out and I said to Mr. John, the owner, I said, look, there's a combination there, and I don't think he can jump. Well, that's all right. He says, don't let, we, we won't start him. I said, yeah, but if he doesn't start today, he can't start tomorrow. He said, so be it. So he didn't jump for two days. The third day was the cock of the north and he came out and won that. So it, it, I never asked him to jump anything that he couldn't have jumped. And I think, thank God, he hadn't been overjumped or overstretched or asked to do too much because he threw his heart into that oxer the second time, which normal horses wouldn't have done that if they'd been scared in the past. Yeah, so you sort of through your your partnership and the horsemanship that you showed on other occasions were were able to keep his confidence, so he he could put his confidence in in you on that occasion when it really counted. Yes, there's no question about that. But he was absolutely phenomenal there. 
I mean, what what a memory. Would you say that, that Mexico was sort of his career highlight looking back? If if one had to really pick a week when he excelled, probably yes, but it wasn't the only week he excelled. You know what I mean? He had so many so many moments of total excellence. I mean Hickson was phenomenal, Rotterdam was phenomenal, and the horse was phenomenal with David Barker, even as a young horse. He won two or three Grand Prix on the trot. But not many horses do that. And he was obviously a very versatile horse as well to sort of win the Hickster Derby, to win Bing Grand Prix, to win at championships, jumping day after day. Was that more common in those days that horses sort of mixed and matched and did a lot of different sorts of classes? Well, when the Hickster Derby came along and we'd, we'd all heard of the Hamburg Derby and Hickster Derby was a, a takeoff of it. And um, it was there, it was tidy prize money, probably 500 quid or something, whatever it was in those days. And it was a challenge of the time, but um, I, I mean, he was just so brave. He never spooked at anything uh, at all the strange fences that Hicks said. Big ring, he could gallop on, and um, it was just phenomenal. We were very lucky that day, funnily enough, to win the Hicks said derby because the, the, the hedge fence goes away from the collectoring. They used to hedge used to be a lot higher in those days between the poles. I mean, the poles were very insignificant to the hedge, and he, he kind of banked it, kicked back. Well, put his back end down in it and kicked the middle rail off of the front part. And um, But we left all the top poles up. So that, that's how we come the only clear that day with him. But you need a <laughs> bit of luck to win any class, really. Yeah, for sure. And just looking at his record, he won um, won the big Grand Prix in Dublin a couple of times as well, which uh, that horse show at Dublin is always a pretty uh, impressive occasion as well. He must have been, uh, been phenomenal there too. Yes, I mean... <laughs> I think we were both lucky in Dublin. Uh, I mean, he was going back to the land of his birth, and Dublin was has always been a very lucky show for me. I mean, you you do get lucky shows, and I must say, looking back, Hicks uh, Dublin was probably the one of my luckiest shows. I won, managed to win the Grand Prix there six times, and Nick Skelton rode a, a couple of horses for me there, and he won the Grand Prix on them as well. So altogether, horses from my yard won the Grand Prix at Dublin nine times, which is phenomenal when you think about it. As I said, some shows are just for you. I don't think Eddie Macken, the great rider that he was, um, a phenomenal jockey, he, he never won well, never won the Dublin Grand Prix his home, on his home ground. And that goes to show what some shows suit, suit you, are lucky for you, where others just, you always have a rail down, you know, and you don't win nothing. Well, next time I uh, get to go to the Dublin Horse Show, I know they have all the boards up at the back of the riders' bar in the pocket. They've got all those rolls of honour up on the wall for the Aga Khan and the Grand Prix, and I shall have a look and see if you're right, and Eddie Mack and never won it. But um, And I'll have a look for your six wins too. But um, it's been great to talk to you today, David. Thank you so much for joining us and, and telling us all about Mr Softy. It's been lovely to hear about him. Oh, it's a pleasure. It, it was my good fortune to have the ride on him. Oh, it's lovely to hear that. And thank you for sharing your stories. It's been great to hear. Pleasure. Thank you very much. So I'm joined today by three of my horse and hound colleagues. So first of all, it's hello to our senior news writer, Lucy Elder. How are you, Lucy? I'm very well, thank you, Pippa. I had uh, the week off last week to watch Cheltenham all week, really. So it's... Uh, yeah, it's been nice to watch some good sport and um, my horse is feeling 
well but a lot calmer than she was at the beginning of March so I think she's taking on the the saying of roaring in like a lion and going out like a lamb hopefully this month so um yeah no enjoying getting out and about in the sunshine a bit too excellent oh it's nice that you had the week off to watch Cheltenham there's uh, we, we we realized you had done that when we noticed that you were off last week and it's like what's Lucy doing you can't go anywhere and then it's like <laughs> oh she's cunning she's having an uninterrupted viewing of <laughs> Cheltenham exactly <laughs> Good work. And we also have Becky Murray, our news writer, with us. How are you doing, Becky? I'm getting there. Um, I've been doing lots of lunging and pole work, so I can hopefully get back on again soon following my rather boring injury. But I spent the weekend grooming my very, very hairy Shetland ponies who have caught on spring is here. So I'm just walking around covered in horse hair at the moment. What have you been up to, Pippa? That does sound like a curry comb job and a half. Um, well, I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast that I very much enjoyed watching Osby on the live stream earlier in the week. So I'm really excited that eventing is coming back and uh, hoping to actually get to go to an event to report next week. So really looking forward to that. The third person joining us today is Polly Bryan, our dressage editor, and we'll explain to you why uh, Polly's uh, squeezing into the news segment a bit later on. But uh, how are things going with you, Polly? Hi, Pippa. Yes, I'm all good. Um, I'm not covered in horse hair, but I am covered in dog hair because my lovely dog has also realised that it's spring and has started molting everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So molting is the theme of this week's podcast. I think uh, we also have, you know, lack of uh, of hairdressing for humans at the moment. (laughs) So uh, I haven't had a haircut for nearly a year and a half now. And uh, it's it's becoming a bit of an extreme situation, which I'm going to have to do something about when uh, when hairdressers reopen. But uh, Becky, I think you have my my sympathy with the uh, curry combing Shetland. Although I suppose the good thing about a Shetland is at least there's no problem with like being able to reach high enough. Presumably it's easy enough to access all the parts of a Shetland that you might need to curry comb. That's it. Although having to sort of bend down is not doing much wonders for my back. But um, no, it's... <laughs> no, I will get there. They need a good bath, I think. That'll do the job. Oh, yeah. I hadn't really thought about the bad back caring for Shetland situation. <laughs> but hopefully you'll be able to uh, get riding again soon, although not on the Shetlands, I'm at pains to point out. <laughs> Right, moving on to the serious news. Becky, we're going to start with you and the latest on EHV today. And we've got a new process in Britain to try and prevent any spread of the equine herpes virus. Can you give us the lowdown on that? Of course. So British Equestrians Equine Infectious Diseases Advisory Group has recommended a self-certification process for competitions. These are forms where riders will declare that their horses are healthy and have not been in contact with others showing signs of infectious disease. Now, British show jumping, British dressage and British eventing so far have confirmed they will be operating these forms and they need to be completed 24 hours before the horse arrives at the venue. This process is due to be in place until the 12th of April, but it could stay in place longer depending on the risk level of the current European outbreak. Okay, and have these forms actually been used by any venues yet? Yes, Junior British Show Jumping restarted in Scotland this weekend, which is great news. I spoke to Morris Equestrian in Ayrshire, who used forms for the first time. Now, the owner, Penny, spoke very positively about the process. She said there was no issues with it, and they will actually be using the forms for all their other competitions now too. Certainly her view was, it's a very proactive thing to do, so it's good to hear that these forms have worked well. 
Okay, and the forms, as you say, it's a self-certification process. So while there's nothing to stop you lying on the form as such, I guess it's a case of forcing people to think about, you know, their horse's health and and, and, and sort of be proactive in that way. Is that right? That's right. Um, Ian Graham of British Show Jumping said, you know, it's about putting biosecurity and equine health at the forefront of everyone's mind, really, and really to raise that awareness of the need to avoid mixing horses if they're not well. Okay, so it's all about raising awareness. And I've been reading a a bit about vaccination VHV this week. I've seen some people sort of recommending it on social media and that sort of thing. Is it something that our listeners should be considering? This is certainly a question that's cropped up a lot since the outbreak. Um, I did put this to the British Equine Veterinary Association that at the moment the EHV vaccine registered in the UK was developed for the prevention of abortion rather than respiratory or the neurological forms of EHV and at present there's certainly not a vaccine registered to prevent against the neurological form. I mean as a whole the vaccine you know is likely to reduce EHV infections generally but since the outbreak there has been an increased demand for this vaccine making it temporarily unavailable and the concern is obviously reserving the stocks for broodmares. So Beva said when the vaccine becomes available again owners may wish to plan ahead and consider vaccination but ultimately it's not recommended to vaccinate in the event of an outbreak of the neurological strain, which is obviously what we've been seeing in Europe. Okay, so people shouldn't be rushing out to vaccinate horses and indeed probably can't at the moment with that sort of supply shortage. That's right. Okay, thank you, Becky. Now, EHV feeds into our next story too. And we've asked Polly to join us today because she's been looking at Olympic qualifications. Polly, this came about because of a slightly shocking revelation from one of Britain's absolutely A-list riders last week, didn't it? Yes, Pippa, it did. We have the lovely Carl Hester, who writes an excellent column for us every month. And in his March column, which is uh, out now, he mentioned the fact that he is actually not qualified yet for the Tokyo Olympics on his current top horse on Vogue. Of course, I read this and I was straight on the phone to Carl to find out more because it hadn't even occurred to me that he might not be qualified. And and it's true, he he, he isn't yet. Okay, so can you clarify for us exactly what qualifications combinations need to compete in the dressage at the Olympics? Yes, so in a nutshell, a combination must twice achieve a minimum of 66% in a Grand Prix awarded by a five-star judge of a different nationality to the rider and also as an average from all of the judges in that competition. They have to have these results from two different eligible FEI events between 1st of January 2019 and the 21st of June 2021, which is the current cutoff date for this year's Olympics. Um, Those combinations who gained these minimum eligibility requirements in 2019 are required to have a confirmation result. So another 66% in an eligible FEI event uh, in 2020 or 2021. Okay, and sort of where is Carl on the journey to achieving those qualifications? So Carl took over the ride on on Vogue in February 2020. The horse is owned by Charlotte Dujardin and he took over the ride from her last year. Obviously with COVID and the fact that the horse had only really just reached Grand Prix level, he has only done the one CDI event uh, so far, which was Kiso in October. He had a very good result. He was fourth in the Grand Prix with um, a score of over 76%. Uh, but of course, that's only one result. He hasn't had that 
that second one, he hasn't had a chance. And the reigning Olympic champion, Charlotte herself, is actually in the same situation on Geo, also known as Pumpkin. He only made his Grand Prix debut in January 2020, and that was at a national show. So his only international appearance has also been at Kiso in October. He scored almost 80% in the Grand Prix, but again, it's only one result. It's really important to also point out that Charlotte is qualified on her other top Grand Prix horse, Mount St. John Freestyle. Of course, she was able to go out and gain points throughout 2019 and early 2020, as she has been at that level for a much longer time. I think the irony actually for me is that we've seen Carl and Charlotte out on Vogue and Pumpkin several times in the last few months. They they both rode these horses at some of the unofficial uh, Grand Prix events that were run at Hartbury in the summer with five-star judges in attendance. And of course, they both rode those horses at the Grand Prix Championships at Christmas, scoring far, far higher than the 66% required. But of course, these are not FEI shows and they're not they're not eligible. Um, there have been, there has been some really good news regarding um, the CDI cancellations in that Wellington riding in Hampshire is now due to host a new CDI in May, which uh, will replace in the calendar the Kiso show that should have happened earlier this month. Um, at present, though, the Wellington show is not on the FEI list of shows at which riders can collect Olympic qualifying points. It's a really important replacement in the calendar. Even so, it serves other purposes. But the reason Carl is frustrated is because we have this new show on home soil, but it won't serve to help him qualify for Tokyo. And of course, with the combined factors of Brexit, COVID, EHV, taking horses abroad to compete is a much more complex and and a lot more uncertain prospect than in previous years. Yeah, it does sound a little bit bonkers that that we might sort of start forcing combinations to go abroad and tackle those problems and maybe sort of take health risks in order to get that Olympic qualification when they are clearly sort of horses and riders which are performing at the top of the game and will be in medal contention at the Olympics, let alone, you know, just being qualified to be there. Did you speak to the FEI about this, Polly? Yes, I did. I reached out to the FEI. They confirmed to me that they are planning to discuss introducing some similar emergency measures as they have done in the past few days in jumping. Um, These are basically changes concerning uh, date clash rules and application deadlines that will hopefully make it easier and faster for event organisers to schedule FEI events. They, the FBI weren't able to confirm for me uh, at the moment whether or not Wellington might be added to the list of, of qualifier shows. But actually, since we put this story to press in print on Monday, these measures that were being discussed have actually been confirmed by the FEI and National Federation and event organisers will now have more flexibility when it comes to arranging FEI events in the run up to Tokyo and of course that all important June date. Um, I should also point out, of course, Carl and Charlotte are not the only people in this situation. There will be other riders in the UK and Europe who will have, of course, struggled to qualify on on horses they would like to get qualified for Tokyo. Um, As you say, though, Carl and Charlotte really are are medal contenders and, and British Olympic hopes are riding heavily on both of them. That's really interesting. And it's sort of Olympic qualification is something that we've been talking about a bit on the eventing side as well recently. And on the eventing side, it's sort of a similar situation that the riders have to achieve their qualifying results between January 2019 and the 21st of June 2021. In eventing, they have to get a qualifying result, which is certain standards in all three phases, but they have to get those results at either one five star or at both a four star short and a four star long. 
And if they did achieve their full qualification during 2019, with the Olympics having been put back, they now have to have a confirmation result at four star short or higher achieved between the 1st of January 2020 and the 21st of June 2021. So for those riders who maybe have a newer ride, as you were discussing there with Carl and Charlotte Polly, or just those who didn't do a lot last year because there wasn't a lot on, it's been a bit of a concern with events being cancelled sort of on the horse trials side, particularly losing the four-star options at Bramham in June. But Lucy, I'm going to bring you in here because we do have some positive news on that this week, don't we? We have, and it has been really fascinating just how quickly things have changed. When we think back to the start of March and the first two weeks of March, we had five international events, not just four star and above, but all levels in Britain were cancelled within within those two weeks. And we, a lot of us were sitting here thinking, oh my goodness, is this, is this the flavour for the season? But British eventing and organisers have really picked up and the tide has turned so to speak and I think just about all of those with the exception of obviously badminton which isn't going to be replaced but all the others so far have been replaced the big news really is that Bicton is taking on Bramham's dates but like Polly said and again I think this is possibly just something that hasn't gone gone through yet so I wouldn't want to put any certainty on this but I have just been looking at the 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 calendar of Olympic qualification events it's not on there yet but I will be speaking to the FEI later today just to get an update on on what that is and and what it means for for some of the other four stars we hope are going to be added to the list as well. Mm, I very much hope this is sort of just a case of the FEI catching up on the paperwork. I because really if, hope so. If, if Bicton didn't count as a qualification event, that would be a little bonkers and take away a lot of the point of that rescheduling, I think. Um, and Lucy, I think you touched on it there. There's There's been a couple of sort of lower level events also rescheduled, which won't be probably useful for, for, can, for Olympic qualification, but will be good for riders up and down the levels and riders with young horses. Can you just give us a quick rundown on those as well? Yes, absolutely. So we heard last week that Siren Sester is taking on Withington Manners classes uh, in early May. Belze is now running a CCI two-star long for juniors to help with their preparations ahead of the, the Europeans this season. And we've also seen something slightly new from Tweezledown and Little Downham, which are uniting to run what they've called Little Tweezledownham, um, which rolls off the tongue quite nicely. And um, They're hosting a two-star and three-star short classes, as well as the national novice and intermediate classes and they've the organizers there have kind of split the date from Rockingham and worked it in a way that they really hope is going to be really helpful to riders and keep costs down so they're taking those short format international events which were you know sort of the idea is they can be run in one day and they are running them on one day so you know it's removing the need for stabling um helping with riders own schedules and yard cover and grooms and things like that and also number of horses you can have on your lorry and how many you can ride in a day and things so so that's quite exciting i think it seems to have been pretty well welcomed as well from from riders so that's it's really nice to have positive things to be writing about at the moment yeah that's uh, really great to see british eventing and organizers working together and thinking outside the box to uh, to get those classes rescheduled for everybody's good and i don't think that i am super worried from the point of view of british based riders about actually getting qualified for the olympics i do think that so long as sort of bicton 
gets onto that list, it'll be possible with the events we have in place and, and with what people did do last year. But I do think potentially it's going to be hard for riders to sort of plot their course and choose the right events to prepare horses for selection and for the actual games in the best possible way. I think it's always a bit more unpredictable when a venue is running at a level for the first time. It's difficult to know how tough or easy a course might be. And uh, the selectors will have to look at that as well in terms of sort of making comparisons between horses running at different events. I have to say that I've been refreshing the entries for the US Five Star at Kentucky about every five minutes for the last 10 days. Um, really keen to see what British riders might be going there. At the time of speaking, we only have the US-based British rider Leslie Law on that list, but I do think by the time this podcast comes out a little later in the week, there might be a couple more on there. And I see as well the prices have five horses on the list between them, so there definitely are people making the journey from Britain. Have you had a look at that list, Lucy? Do you have an early pick for a Kentucky winner? I have. I've been the same as you, I think, and I've been refreshing the list quite a lot to see who's who's popping up on that. And I know you just asked me for a winner. Can I give you can I give you a top three? Is that greedy of me? To, that to, to is greedy, three? but I will allow it. Thank you. So I I think Boyd Martin and Set to Leg, I think I think it's gonna be their year. I really do. I can't see I, I'm gonna probably be eating my words here, but I'd like to see them win it. I think that they, you know, as a combination, they're fantastic and I think that would be yeah, I could see them winning. And then I think we're going to have two prices in, in the top three. And again, that's being very cheeky because they've got a lot of entries. So that's really hedging my bets. But if you're going to pin me down, I'd say second classic Moe. I'd love to see her go well. I'd love to see her win it as well. I want everyone to win. I'm terrible to ask the tips on things like this. Um, and then I think we might see Bango in um, in third there. So... Yes, that's that's massively hedging my bets, but I'm I'm quite excited and I'd love to see all of them go well. I'm going to throw in another one, another name in that mix, which is Liz Halliday Sharp and De Niro Z. He's he's a really good horse. He's very good on the flat. His flying changes are not the best, but aside from that, he will do a very competitive test. And Liz was a guest on the podcast earlier in the year, and I also interviewed her for the magazine. So uh, I'm I'm in the Liz Halliday Sharp camp and definitely rooting for her. But I don't disagree with any of your picks either Lucy <laughs> it will be great to uh, to be able to watch Kentucky at the end of April thank you Polly and to Lucy for helping us to explain all of that information about Olympic qualifications about rescheduled events it's all so important and we'll be keeping a, a close eye and uh, definitely making sure that Carl Hester is qualified for the Olympics over the next couple of months Becky I'm coming back to you for our final story today it's quite a different one it's about new research into equine discomfort. Can you give us the details on that, Becky? Well, this was a paper that's been recently published and it's based on 35 years of observations. The researchers in America looked at thousands of horses over the years and took video footage of the horses in hospital. So this included healthy horses or those with some health concerns. And the videos were taken when grooms and staff weren't present. Now, what's interesting is some horses were found to show a behaviour, say, overnight or when no one's on the yard. But when a groom or someone arrived, the behaviour stops. Now, based on all these different observations, the researchers have created an extensive ethogram which um, contains 73 different behaviours displayed by horses when not being ridden. And there's some great images and videos for owners and vets to really identify these behaviours and put a name to them. 
Okay. And, and in what sort of practical ways might people use those, uh, that information in the ethogram in the future? Well, the ethogram's not meant to be diagnostic, but it is useful if an owner is perhaps seeing a horse display a behaviour and maybe noticing this more regularly. It allows owners to describe this to their vets in order for maybe more tests to then be done. Ultimately, the hope is to have a universal understanding of these sorts of different behaviours shown when a horse is uncomfortable. And no matter where you are in the world, the ethogram can allow for better communication on these topics if everyone's sort of using the same terminology. I think it's really great to see more of this type of work being done and I think more and more people are wanting to understand why their horse is doing something so hopefully it will be a real benefit for welfare and to really understand what horses do when they're uncomfortable. Hmm, Interesting stuff. Thank you Becky and thank you to Lucy and Polly for joining us today too. The Horse and Hand podcast is currently supported by NAF. Feeding NAF's five-star optimum concentrated feed balancer will optimise every horse's daily diet. Optimum has been formulated to complement either a high fibre, low concentrate or performance diet and optimise the nutritional value of every daily feed. So we round off today's podcast by hearing from Alan Davies, groom to Carl Hester and Charlotte Desjardins. Over to you, Alan. In this episode, I've been asked to talk about managing horses that live out. It's, um, it's been quite widely publicised how some of our horses do live out. Carl um, is adamant that his horses have to go out and be horses. And um, some of our horses have actually benefited from living out. Nip Tuck was a prime example, and, and we now have on Vogue. He was a very hot horse, a young horse, um, and they both go out all night. On Vogue has got um, a friend, shown as Imhotep, we call him Pete at home. He's um, a young, well, he's not quite so young anymore. I think he's about seven or eight now, but um, we've had him since he was a baby. Um, he's a Dutch horse by Everdale. He's quite hot and fruity, and so is Vogue. So. They go out all night. Um, it's it's so good for them. They can be normal, be horses. They can get their heads down and eat. They can switch stretches their backs, um, and it's and it's great for their minds. Um, it does change the management, especially when they're getting to top level and they're starting to do Grand Prix work. Um, you have to think about. When they come in, in the mornings, you have to think about, they need to be fed, they need to have um, protein and energy for the amount of work they're doing, but you don't want anything too calorific because they've obviously they've been out eating grass all night. So we have to watch the hay haylage amounts. Um, and then also we have to watch their hard feed. You know, obviously they, they do need some feed um, to do the work that they're doing. Um, it's quite, immense the work they do for Grand Prix, um, getting a horse to that level, the, the intensity of the work, the collected work they have to do. So they have to be fed properly and you have to watch their weight, watch their fitness. They still have to work to keep the fitness up. So they'll come in in the morning at about 6.30. If it's sort of spring or autumn um, and the weather's not great, then we will wash their legs 
dry them really well with a towel, um, give the tail a wash if they're, they're dirty, and then they they go into the stables, they have a feed, and then they'll have a few hours rest, and we'll work the other horses that have been in at night so they can get worked, and then they go out during the day, and then um, they'll have a rest and have time to digest everything, and and Bogue likes to have a little snooze. Before he then um, will come out, he'll go for a bit of a hack first, have a leg stretch, and then um, Carl will get on and do some schooling, do some work in the arena, which he'll do about four times a week. And then they will rest up again, they'll have another small feed before they go out, and then they'll go out um, afternoon, evening time, 4.35 o'clock. And they tend to go out with a mate or in threes, probably not any more than that, because then they can get themselves into trouble. And sometimes when we're getting them used to going out, when uh, if they haven't been used to going out at night, then we might feed them in the field just to take them out, give them something to look forward to. They go to their feed and then they eat, and then it's not such a... Um, a big deal when they go out, get loosed, and then they don't all go um, galloping across the field, giving me a heart attack and heart failure. Um, we tend to put overreach boots on them, um, make sure they fit properly. They're not too tight, not too loose, not too long so they can trip on them. Um, but they've got to cover the back of the heel and the shoe, so hopefully we don't get any overreach injuries. And it does tend to work for the hot horses um, and it it means they get more time in the field by going out overnight. It means they can relax, chill and be horses. You know, it, it worked fantastically well with Nip Tuck. We never thought we'd, uh, when he was a young horse, that we'd be able to get him to do what we got him to do. And he won three team medals. He got the silver at Rio. Um, he was an incredible horse. Um, we had to manage him very carefully um, and trying to keep a horse at that level, um, keep their brains right, their bodies right, their legs right. It is an, an ongoing thing and you have to um, manage them properly and be very, very careful. You have to keep an eye on, like I say, on the feeding regime and everything. Um, you have to be very strict with the feeding and make sure you don't overdo it um, and not underdo it either. So. But it's it's worth thinking about if you do have a horse that's very hot and goey, you know, M. Bogues by Jazz, they're notoriously um, hot and goey. Um, and he's always lived out ever since he was a young horse and it's really helped his training because then he comes in and he's much more relaxed and then you can uh, ride him and get the, the riders can get their legs on better and, um, and not have to worry so much. So it's a... a great way of doing it but it does have to be managed, uh, micro-managed um, really closely. Um, so I hope that um, helps and that's sort of given you some handy tips for your hot horses. Thank you Alan. Well that is the last episode in Alan's mini-series so we're very grateful to him for all of his brilliant contributions over the past six weeks and hopefully we'll be able to get him back on the podcast again in the future. Meanwhile, next week, we welcome back vet Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine. Ricky will be talking about how horse rescues work in accidents. 
My colleague Alex Robinson will be talking to leading show producer Joe Bates about some of the horses she's had during her career so far. Plus, we'll catch up on all the week's news as usual. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by NAF. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.